We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Today, I talk with Mark McGinnis, who hosts the 21st Century Creative Podcast, where he interviews creatives and entrepreneurs of all types, because in this day and age, quote, there's a lot more opportunity for creatives and a lot fewer excuses for playing small, unquote. Mark's also a poet who finds that poetry helps him relate to the creative struggles his clients may face. I have known Mark for the better part of 10 years, and at one point, he was my creative coach. He has authored several books, including 21 Insights for 21st Century Creatives and Productivity for Creative People. Mark has always wanted to find a way to make a living helping others, first through hypnotherapy and then through coaching creatives years before the ideas of a, quote, life coach was even heard of. He now coaches entrepreneurs in creative industries who are well into their careers and are looking to further develop their potential. Rather than holding his clients accountable, Mark explains, he makes a space for them and encourages them to enlarge their perspective, and most of all, helps them break through the wall of fear. Mark believes there is more than one way to grow as both an entrepreneur and a creative, and has found that working with a specific type of client rather than trying to scale up his business has worked well for him. Mark also talks about the intimacy of podcasting and the importance of listening to feedback to make a podcast that creatives who listen to him can respect and appreciate. Now, let's get better together. Mark McGinnis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jari. It's always good to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, we've known each other for, I think it's been over a decade. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think we're definitely we're definitely racking up some points. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really funny. I was thinking the other day, I was like, you know, how did I actually get to meet you? And I remember I was part of uh, your lateral action blog um, email list. And I remember you sent an email saying, hey, I have a discount on my coaching services. You'll get a, like a five-pack or a three-pack or something for some ridiculously low amount of money. And I'm like, I'm in. I'm sold, you know. <laughs> and You've I, got a good deal. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. You, I got a sweet deal. And, and I've really appreciated your guidance and, and friendship over these last years because 
you know, as a creative coach, which is uh, what you do for a living, among all, all the other great things that we'll talk about in a second, um, I have really found that your perspective on creativity, on being productive, on, you know, thinking of new ideas and, and, and the, 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 the big creative side of entrepreneurship, I think you've got pretty well nailed down. Um, because pretty much everything that you do, you know, well, I'm a super fan, <laughs> really, but I'm like, it's just been always been fascinating. And, and I would, you know, I know kind of your backstory, but I would love to hear again for the people that are listening, you know, how did you come to be a creative coach and a poet and an entrepreneur and all these great things? Well, I took the scenic route. <laughs> Um, I mean, it all began with poetry, really. I realized, I realized fairly early on that that's what I want to do, uh, like most entrepreneurs, really. Yeah, I think um, so. And it it kind of dawned. So obviously I went to college and read English and spent three years reading poetry, and that was great. But then the, the part about, well, what are you going to do with it afterwards, that took me a little longer to figure out because I realized fairly quickly that I wasn't going to get paid a lot to write poetry. I turned out I was allergic to academia, so that I thought that would be my escape route. That didn't work out. And then I ended up actually training as a hypnotherapist because I got very interested in <clears throat> excuse me, the um the potential of hip I was always been interested in creativity, the creative process. And I got interested in hypnosis as an idea of, you know, unlocking creativity and seeing what what you could discover. And it turned out to train as a hypnotist, you either had to be a stage hypnotist or a therapist. And I didn't want to be a stage hypnotist. And I didn't particularly want to be a therapist, but that seemed like the lesser of the two evils. <laughs> and I went and trained and I made this amazing discovery that I really like working with people, which I would never have expected as a, you know, confirmed introvert Brit uh, and a poet. And that took me on a journey of discovery, really, because I started off consulting in London in the mid-90s, and I had all kinds of people from all walks of life walk through that door, from stopping smoking to losing weight to trauma to depression to anxiety to relationship issues, whatever. But I realized fairly early on there was one category of clients that really stood out for me, and this was the novelist with writer's block the West End actor with stage fright, the uh, film director dealing with the stress of being a film director. And I realized what they all had in common was that they were all creative. And I thought of myself as creative, being a poet. And that meant that there was this kind of unspoken uh, connection that we had, or we had similar values. And I would absolutely include entrepreneurs in that category because to me, entrepreneurship is just as creative uh, a discipline as making something artistic. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's applied creativity, for sure. Right. And and so after a while, I thought, you know what? Most of these people don't really have a, a mental health problem. They put their heart and soul into their work, so sometimes they need to work on their heart and soul. But why don't we call it coaching? So we, we demedicalized this a little. And so that was 1996. I hung up my shingle as a creative coach when, um, you know, like it seems like these days it's suddenly, it, it's quite popular. But in those days, it certainly was not, and certainly not in London. Um, but I, I thought this is what I wanted to, to try. And it's, I've done various other things on the way, but the coaching creatives has been the real thread that just kept me going and and staying motivated and I, i'm still doing it all this time later when so many other things have fallen by the wayside yeah no i mean <laughs> 1996 to be a coach quote unquote yeah that must have been a bit of avant-garde i guess would be the word i would use <laughs> <laughs> you know if if your if your parents are anything like mine, they're like so uh, entrepreneur, uh, coach. Uh, so how do you make any money? You know, don't you have a job? And you're like, yeah, mom, well, dad. You know, I mean, I still have good friends, and maybe you have the same. After twenty five, thirty years, maybe after the second glass of wine, they'll say, "So, 
tell me again, what exactly is it you do? <laughs> <laughs> Every time I talk to my parents, it's the same way. And I've got friends similar, like my fiance Minerva, she's always like, well, you got like six jobs, right? And I'm all, what do you mean? And so she just rattles off all the clients and side projects and companies and hustles. And I'm all, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, six is about right. I, you know, there was this old, I always loved this uh, In Living Color, that old comedy sketch show uh, with Damon, the Wayne brothers, which is just the best show. And that's Jim Carrey's sort of debut as a comedian was on there. They had this sketch about being Jamaican and that like all Jamaicans had like 20 jobs. <laughs> so I always thought that was funny. It's like, how many jobs do you have? How many jobs do you have? So, so wow. I mean, that's creative coaching. Um, you know, like again, I, I first found you on lateral action and you were doing some stuff with Brian Clark early on. If I remember. That's right. Yes. Yes. I had a very interesting apprenticeship with Brian on how to um, communicate and speak to an audience online. So, I mean, if anyone's familiar with copyblogger.com, one of Brian's big things early on was educating the internet about headlines and headline copy. And I think he's done that, if, if anything, rather too well, because everywhere, everywhere you go, you've got headlines vying for your attention. Yes. But one of the, the fun things about working with Brian was that he was the strategic mastermind behind the whole project. And my job, at least to begin with, was to write the blog every week. And I used to play a little game of seeing if I could get the headline past Brian without him tweaking it. <laughs> <laughs> and the first, you know, to begin with, there was a lot of tweaking and rewriting. Yes. Uh, but towards the end, he was even toning me down a little bit. Um, oh, wow. So that was quite cool. And I did get a few past him in the end. But, um, but I, you know, I learned a tremendous amount from Brian because he has got such a great creative and entrepreneurial brain. He's a great writer, but also a great strategic thinker. And, you know, he's launched goodness knows how many companies. And it's, I lost um, track. I've lost track. I mean, I'm, right. I'm in his unemployable initiative, which is now called Seven Figures Small, I think. Uh, Joanna, right. yeah. Joanna is in it too. As well as Jared Morris, who runs the community. Yeah, he's just uh -huh. got so many things going on. I think he's also does this thing called Further for yeah, Further for for Gen Xers, yeah. <laughs> aging Gen Xers like me, which I hate to say, <laughs> but you know that's the one thing you can count on, right? Death and taxes. So, and yeah, and 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 so how is all like? Do you think that the internet really is what? kind of made your coaching accessible because I got to believe in the nineties, it was just sort of starting, you know, and yeah. How did that all work? Well, I once saw Billy Connolly do a routine about what it was like to grow up in 1950 Scotland. And he said it was like the whole world was in black and white and the sky was really low. And then rock and roll came along and he said, yes, this is it. <laughs> you said it was though life came into color after that. And I wouldn't say it was quite as dramatic as that, but certainly in terms of the viability of what I want to do without the internet, it would be a lot harder because, you know, I work with a very particular kind of client and I, early on I had to move to London to work with that kind of client because they were not there in the, the backwater of North Devon where I grew up. Uh, but even then, to find the right kind of person at the right stage of their career with the right level of ambition and and, and whatever, it, it was really looking for the needle in the haystack. And since I've been online and I've had a presence through my writing uh, and more recently podcasting, but it was really, you know, writing that, that kicked it all off with the advent. I started blogging about 2006. I realized, you know, the world is my oyster. I can work with clients all over the world. And that means I can be picky, but also so can they, because they, you, you know, you come online now, there's hundreds of coaches, thousands of them, yeah, and you can find yeah. the right kind of or consultant or mentor or whatever you want to call it it's much, much easier to find a connection with somebody that who really is a, a specialist in your world, so to speak. So these days, I, 
have a lot of international clients who get quite adept at working out time zones in various points in America or Europe or um, Southeast Asia or, or wherever, and how that fits into my day here in the UK. But what it means is that it's much, much easier for me to, to know that there'll be a steady stream of the right kind of clients to, to do what I want to do. And I, I can specialize really to my heart's content in working with inspiring, ambitious, unconventional creatives, entrepreneurs, you know, people in the arts or media or whatever. And, you know, there's plenty of those people on, around the globe. Yeah, because because I know um, you you had sort of changed your coaching model. Uh, was it has it been like five or six years ago? Was it when you went to the new model? I don't remember. Um, about twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. I so. switched over, and at that stage, I just I stopped doing a lot of stuff, a lot of the other stuff that right. I was kind of overdoing, like conference speaking or running workshops, and just focused on coaching. And I'd gone from previously, it was a model that I'd inherited from therapy where people come along and book a session by the hour. And if they want another one next week, they'll book another one next week. And if not, but since then I've thought, no, I only work with people when we make a certain level of commitment in terms of the time uh, that we are going to commit to this project. And people either want to do that or they don't. Yeah. And since then, uh, you know, the results that I've got and the the satisfaction that I get from knowing, okay, I, I'm going to be in somebody's life for this period of time. Um, we're going to go on this journey together and things will not be the same afterwards. That that has gone through the roof. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the focus and, you know, in the entrepreneur kind of sense, you're kind of like the kind of co-founder coach kind of thing. Like there was a, there was a great, um, documentary about the heavy metal band metallica i don't know if you know who metallica i mean everyone knows who metallica is. i know who metallica <laughs> are, yeah. i mean they, i know they even made it they even made it to the uk yeah they even made it to the uk uh they had a uh documentary called some kind of monster and it was the story of their addiction problems specifically the lead guitarist and singer james heckfield and how they were trying to do their their new album, and they were just like tearing apart, like and this whole. It's it's a great documentary about how um, success and fame and pressure and creativity can just boil over, and personal problems can explode, just explode. And they had they brought in a coach, creative coach, and a kind of th therapist coach or whatever. And there's a scene where you know he's trying to like help them with their creative process. And mm -hmm. you can you can tell that the therapist I don't remember he's a famous one I don't remember his name um, you can tell that the coach slash therapist slash you know mentor crossed the line and as soon mm -hmm. as he crossed the line it's like they realized oh shit like he is now got us to the level where we need to be and it was almost like a you, you see when you see it it's subtle but you're like oh wow they they finally get it that that this creative process this collaboration this alchemy of metallica and what they do and how they're creative and how they're building all these great things in terms of music or whatever how not only precious and fragile it is but how these guys in the room have to do the work they can't like they got to do the blue collar work to get it done. They can't rest on their laurels. They can't, you know, they needed that, that coach to be like, get your act together. Um, and I can see with this, you know, the model where you're sort of in it with them, how one, in one sense it's freeing because you got, you know, a co-founder quote unquote, in any endeavor is better than just yourself. But more importantly, I think it's that um, ability to kind of, be held accountable that you have to do the work is is that sort of what you find in this process or are those moments like that where you're the people that you're coaching are kind of like oh i finally get it <laughs> well i think it's what i mean i, I always say to clients i'm not going to hold you accountable no. because then it becomes my goal not yours oh, it's okay. not my job to nag you and i don't have an investment in in them achieving one thing or the other. But what I say I will do is I'm going to hold the space 
for the next few months or the next year. And you can hold yourself accountable within that. It's like you're living the examined life for that period. And I'm not a teacher. I'm not setting homework and scolding people if they don't turn up and and do it. But what I will do is, you know, I'm going to have a conversation with them about that. And I'm sure, I mean, I certainly experienced this when I worked with a coach. When you know that you're going to go and talk to somebody next week about how you showed up, at today's event, whether you, you know, hid and, and, and chickened out or whether you showed up big time and did something brave, then obviously it's going to tilt the balance, isn't it? And, um, excuse me. And it works both ways, by the way, there's been plenty of times in my own private life when I've been faced with a situation and the thought, okay, if I chicken out now, how am I going to face my client on Monday morning? You know, so I need I need to to live it too. So I think when you're in a relationship like that, it really it's not just about the time that you actually spend talking to each other. It's about the fact that you say over this period of time, I'm going to commit to this goal, to this change, and sooner or later, I'm going to have to break through that wall of fear, which there's always a wall of fear. And I say to clients, sometimes you can go through it slowly and painfully and agonizingly, or you can go through it really fast in a really intense way and have a big breakthrough moment. And everyone has their own way of doing it. Wow. Hmm. I did not know that. That's great. Yeah. I, I, that's super interesting because, you know, a lot of coaching, you have these models and, you know, they, they have all these like accountability groups and goals and all this sort of stuff. And I, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not that big a fan of accountability groups. I've tried to do them before. Uh, and I just, for whatever reason, kind of peter out. I I think it's just in my nature to be either I'm either self-motivated or I'm like, Oh, you know, this goes, it, you know, I got a zig and zag every week, every day. And, you know, I get too distracted. Maybe that's part of my problem. Um, but what, what I've found that's been really great, obviously, you know, talking to you, we, we talk every couple of months, but also listening to your podcasts, um, the 21st century creative, which along with all the books, which has been kind of a great source of, I think, I would say maybe inspiration, motivation, but more importantly, it's sort of, it's sort of hard as an entrepreneur to think sometimes think creatively. Um, and the thing that I like about how you've approached it is that you take all sorts of creative people and figure out kind of, I wouldn't say what makes them tick or actually, why don't you explain it? Cause you're better at it than I am. It, it can be a whole spectrum. I mean, some people come in and they really want to focus on a piece of creative work. They want to finally write that book or get the screenplay done or get good at a, a certain skill or, or, or whatever. Others, it's much more about their create, sorry, their professional development about all the stuff that goes, they say, I'm, I'm good in the studio. I'm good at developing a product. I'm good at writing or whatever, but then I have to go into a meeting and I don't know what to say. I mean, my voice sticks in my throat or I have to um, speak in front of an audience. I have to persuade people. I have to be involved in tricky conversations and negotiations. And it's I, I want to show up at the same level of, of creativity and intensity and courage that I have in that um, you know, producing environment. And so a lot of the time we're talking about all the stuff that goes around the outside of creative work, or it could be a bit of both. But the number one thing that I say to every client that we're going to end up working on is you. Because, you know, the kind of clients I work with, they've typically got 10 years plus experience in their field. They are a highly skilled professional in a, in a field that I don't work in. I mean, I'm, I'm working with an entrepreneur or a film producer or a novelist or uh, I don't know, a, a, a TV presenter or an actor, I can't do those things. 
And so that makes me humble enough as a coach to come in and ask the big picture questions, the, the questions about mindset, about motivation, about self-doubt, courage, resilience, and so on. And those are the things that certainly at that level, again, make the biggest difference. It's not going to be, you know, they've, they've got, gone beyond the point of needing someone to tell them what to do, or if they need that, they've got a specialist technical instructor. But working with a, a client at that level, the wonderful thing is if you work with somebody who is very creative, very high performer, they will take a simple question and do an awful lot of work with it. And so I know that, you know, on the one level, I'm not scaling my business in terms of having employees and mass e-learning programs, whatever. But the other, the way I do scale it is I work with people who are going to make a big difference. Yeah. Oh, that's really, that's interesting thing to, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. Yeah. Cause you could go kind of both ways. So there's the, you can go general and broad or specific and narrow, but that specific and narrow could have like orders of magnitude more impact on the world. Huh. You're almost like a venture capitalist for creatives. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. <laughs> you sort of invest in all these 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 great ideas and you know some of I mean, you know, of course venture capitalists get equity, right? But I yeah, well, you get the satisfaction, I guess, seems and you know, a little bit of the pride in it would be my guess. Interesting. I never, you know, I didn't think of it that way because I see a lot of these coaching, you know, programs and, you know, seven steps to blah, 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 whatever, whatever, which is all fine and good, but I just never get kind of turned on by them and and turned on in like the way of like, oh, I want to do this, you know? Well, I think you've got to, as well, this is where a lot of the self-knowledge comes into it. You've got to know what your zone of best performance is. So I, I, a book I really love that you probably come across as well is Derek Sivers' book, Anything You Like, mm-hmm. Anything You Want, isn't it? And there was one page of that book that really stopped me in my tracks. He said, your business is your utopia. Oh. It's where you create your perfect world and you write all the laws and all the rules wow. and things happen the way you want them to happen because they're not going to happen out in the world at large. And I realized that actually I had created my utopia, which is I get up in the morning, I get breakfast for the kids, I walk them to school, I come home, I do a bit of Tai Chi, and I spend my morning writing. And then in the afternoon, when the time zones are kicking in for North America, I have conversations with inspiring creators. And then I have to do a bit of email. There's always there's even email in Utopia. <laughs> You haven't got rid of that, right? (laughs) Maybe see the kids again before bed and and watch a movie with my wife. And I thought, well, that's my utopia. And I've had plenty of people saying, oh, you should hire other coaches and scale it and, you know, have this business where you get a percentage of what they do. And I just thought, I don't want to do that. That's not me. That wouldn't satisfy me. I just want to go and lie down when I think about that. But Michael Bungay-Stania, a really great coach who I, I know and respect, he does the opposite. You know, he, he uh, said to me once, he realized fairly early on how powerful coaching was and how little interest he was in doing it every day. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's done the thing where he hired a load of other, you know, he built a team, he built a machine, and I think he's moved on from this now. But th- that company box of crayons is, is making a huge difference in the, particularly in the corporate world, in helping use coaching to help the way people lead. So I think, you know, if anybody's listening to this, it's partly you've got to think about impact and revenue and, and all of that stuff, but also really just think about what do you know about yourself and the way the environment where you do your best work and what would a business look like if you designed it from the inside out, or at least you took account of that. Um, because that goes into sustainability too. If you know, if you build something that you hate doing every day, you that's not going to be sustainable. Yeah, true enough. True enough. Um, that's actually a really good way to think about it. I, I like that kind of build it from the inside out approach. Because a lot of times entrepreneurs want to scale. You know, one metric that matters: grow ten percent a week. You know, the Y Combinator model, and you know, let's build it to a unicorn. You know, and all that. 
Well, but you know, if if that is your happy place, if that's where you you really catch fire, then go and do that. Yeah. yeah. But just don't do it because everyone else is saying that's the way it's got to be done. Because you know, there's all kinds of different approaches that you can take these days. Yeah, true enough. I think when you're in the venture-backed startup world, the drive and motivation when you have investors is clearly build, make more money, scale. Um, and that you don't have to do that. I think that's a great... I think a lot of people don't realize that there's way more entrepreneurs that do what everyone in Silicon Valley calls a lifestyle business, which I'm not particularly fan of the term, but okay. you know, It's one that's sort of like bootstrapped and you don't have outside investors and you know you just sort of go on your merry way um, you obviously control more of it if you don't have an investor or a series of investors uh so how, how did the 21st century creative podcast come about it came about a bit like so I started blogging 2006 and that was at a point where I realized I had, you know, every so often I get this thing called media envy. I realized I'm reading a lot of this type of thing or listening or watching it. And I think I want one of those. So I was reading all these blogs and I was thinking that how hard can that be? I, I can do that. I read Steve Pavlina's blog, which was terrific, uh, personal development for smart people. And I thought, I know I'm going to do personal development for creative people. And it just seems such an obvious thing for me to do. And I did, and it changed my life. And I met Brian and I met you and I met a load of other great people. And we all kind of helped each other. You know, we're learning to kind of build a spaceship in flight as it were <laughs> exactly. in those, those early days. Right. Um, but then it got to round about 2016 ish, maybe a bit of earlier than that. And I realized, uh, you know, the blog, blogging was not new and shiny for me anymore. I mean, I still did it a bit, but it wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting up in the morning with the same enthusiasm, but I was listening to a lot of podcasts. And uh, one of the shows I listened to a lot was my friend and, and yours, Joanna Penn, um, the Creative Pen podcast. And I just loved the way she showed up. She shared her own journey, what she was doing, what, uh, you know, her own, she's a writer, she writes thrillers. And then she would interview somebody. And I thought, what a great combination. She, she's got her own story her own insights at the beginning of the show and then the interview so you know in good creative fashion i stole that format <laughs> <laughs> and i put together a show where and so the idea of the 21st century creative is we are at an age where there's a lot more opportunity for creatives and a lot fewer excuses for playing small because you know traditionally creatives have we've made very good victims we've been very good at um, waiting for the crumbs to fall from the, the table of the king or the pope or the, the publishing company or the record company and, you know, being told what to do by the grown-ups. Yes. And I think now we're at a point where we're coming back to the internet again. There's a lot of, um, what did Mark say, that, you know, the means of production is now in the hands of the workers. Yeah, yeah. And we can, we can create our own work. We can put it out there like you're doing today on this this show um we don't need to just go play by the old rules and i think what i like about the 21st century is you know i picked the name to, to keep me looking forward to stop getting too nostalgic and romantic the way we poets tend to do <laughs> um and i just thought okay let's have a show where we explore what the opportunities are what the pitfalls are for creatives in this brave new world and i deliberately i do it in seasons and every season i mix it up I have fine artists, I have a performer, I have some commercial creatives, I have entrepreneurs like you, Jari, who came in, gave me a great interview. Yes, I remember. Um, I'll have great. somebody talking about leadership or personal development or weird technology like, I don't know, flotation tanks, or this week I've got Marcus Dussotoy, the mathematician, talking about AI and the future of creativity, which is pretty mind-blowing. Um, and then the following week, I'll deliberately mix that up and have someone talking about traditional crafts and, you know, ha what place they have in the modern world. So I, I like the idea of having a lot of a lot of different things mixed in there, but hopefully with a, you know, a, a theme of empowerment coming through the whole thing. Oh, I, I think it definitely comes through that way. Uh, and what there's a couple of things that are just 
just wonderful about it and how you approach it. One, I'm, you know, I'm glad you stole Joanna's format because <laughs> I like Joanna's <laughs> format. And I'm sure she's like, go ahead, guys, go ahead and take it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. She's cool with that. Yeah, she's great. Um, I had her on the podcast uh, the other day as well. And just love, love what she does and how she She's approaches great. Cre- yeah. creativity. But, but more importantly, I think this whole idea of the artisan and the craftsman, I think now more than ever is going to start making a resurgence um, because the world is getting a lot, one, a lot smaller and two, you know, the means of production have been democratized. I mean, like we're you're in you're in, you're in the UK. I'm in San Francisco. We're recording a podcast on my Mac using you know Hindenburg and Zoom and like pretty much yeah. I've got I could pretty much do great audio this whole thing right with everything in my my little office, and then I can distribute it to the world pretty quickly and easily. And so, yeah. so now it's just a question of how do you get past all this noise in the world, right? And I think uh, I think it was Tim Grawl that wrote the book or wrote one of the books, you know, a thousand your first that well he wrote the one your first that selling your first thousand books, and then there's another person which I don't remember their name that wrote uh, your first thousand fan super fans or something, um, where because of the internet and because of all this creativity that's can be disseminated pretty quickly and easily, you really only need a thousand people to actually listen to what you have to say or buy your art or whatever. And that's more of an artisan approach as opposed to a mass media approach or mass market approach. Um, So how have you found, you know, doing the 21st century creative podcast in terms of the episodic nature of it, you know, a lot of people like what I do is I try to do one a week because I just want to get the cadence in. But um, how has it been to kind of craft that like seasonal theme? I mean, it's like a, it's almost like this curated look at creativity, which, which is with all these great people, they're super eclectic. Like I've learned, I always learned something interesting and new when you had, the guy that does your sound on, which I don't remember his name. Um, Javier Weyla. Yeah. And let me tell you, your sound production is just A+. plus. It's it's absolutely beautiful to listen to. And and it's so funny because I think the interview, you guys were walking around someplace when you could walk around <laughs> with people. Um, yeah. And, and, and he's picking up all these beautiful sounds and noises where normally audio people be like, oh, no, we got the wind blower. We got this. But his exploration of audio yeah. it's totally interesting well javier is a real phenomenon because he is he, you know he's so many things he's a great drummer oh, he was great. uh he was the drummer in the band stereophonics for eight years oh wow these days he plays drums for phil manzanera from roxy music oh nice so uh, and i've been to to see him play he's you know i mean he really knows what he's doing but he's also a composer and a producer and so I persuaded him to do the music for my show. Um, and he, yeah. So I also knew because there's a lot of media professionals listening to my show that I, I had to get good sound production because I, and I do, I get emails from clients about my microphone technique. Oh, really? <laughs> like these guys, yeah, they, yeah, they're like film people, TV people, oh. radio people, music people. They can hear stuff I can't. So wow. I hand it over to Javier, and, and now I get consistently good feedback from those kind of people. Uh, so it's definitely worth you know knowing your audience when you think about how to put together a show. Um, and so that interview, I said, so come on, Javier, you've got to come out from behind the, the mixing desk and let's let's interview you because I mean, he's an amazing guy. He came from South America to London and made his way in the music business. And, um, he's got a great story to tell. So we recorded this interview walking along the riverbank in London. And it was only, you know, it was at a time when, you know, there was a few terror attacks going on and it was only when we got, we actually set out along the riverbank and I thought, hang on a minute, we're, we're, two guys with rucksacks and we've got wires coming out of the rucksacks <laughs> and we're walking along in broad daylight in London. This could, this could go badly, but um, fortunately nobody gave us a second glance. And 
you know, we walked along the riverbank and you could hear, you know, birds singing, planes and cars and trucks going past and you could school children playing and whatever. And I said to Javier, well, you know, you're the guy who's got to sort all this out when you get back home. So, um, but he did a great job. And, you know, that, that was, um, it's really fun being able to play around with ideas like that occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's so fascinating how, you know, cause I never, I mean, I never knew how hard it was to do audio engineering and make things sound good until I started doing a podcast. And your podcast is what turned me on to try to pay attention to the sound, <laughs> among other things. Yeah. There's a lot of things that, that you've taught me through through your podcast and just our friendship. But the the thing about the medium of podcasting, which is, I think, the reason why it's so popular, the reason why it's growing, and also the reason why it's a great venue for creative people, people that are trying to get their voice out in the world is because it's this intimate connection with someone that's having hopefully a long form conversation about some interesting topic. And, and I know when I did the story grid editor Roundtable podcast, you know, with, uh, with Leslie, Valerie, uh, Kim and Anne, um, they were doing it because I mean, they're all story nerds like me. They're, they're, they're next level story nerds. They're all just wonderful when it comes to story and stuff, but they were all editors, right? And yep. the amazing thing that they would tell me is like, oh yeah, I get people all the time that'll say, hey, I want to hire you because I like the way you sound on your podcast. Hmm. Have you had that same kind of experience? No. Can you give them my number? <laughs> <laughs> I just think uh, it's- What, you mean for voiceover work? Well, well there's that. No, for like hiring as a coach or voiceover. Work. Oh yeah, oh def definitely yeah. for coaching. And I would <laughs> certainly say, since I upgraded from a blog to a podcast, the caliber of coaching inquiries has has definitely gone up hmm. and been more con more consistently great. And I've had more people. And this, I guess it, I'm pleased, and it, it shouldn't be a surprise. I'm getting more inquiries from people in the media world, like film and TV and so on, because I guess if you present yourself in a, a an audio medium with music and so on, then, you know, it's easier to get those people's attention than maybe with books and, and just text on the web. So, uh, yeah, so definitely it has been worth all the, and it's, a, I agree with you. It's an awful lot more work than I anticipated. Probably as good a job. I didn't know how much work it would be up front. Oh, me too. But, me too. <laughs> um, certainly the payoff. A, I mean, I really enjoy doing it. And B, um, in terms of business inquiries, I think when somebody listens to like 40 hours of your voice, they, they've probably got some kind of connection to you or, or they stop listening. And there's quite <laughs> a few people have said they listen to, you know, they go back and they listen to the show all the way from the show from the beginning and then they get in touch for coaching and, oh. and that's been great. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I mean, it does, it does seem like you get to know someone a little bit more than just on the written page because i mean you know i've i've again i'm a fan of the blog of your blog read a lot of that stuff of course i i actually sometimes get to read your books before they come out which i appreciate <laughs> very much so um and you know the, the the style and the personality come out on the page uh but it gets reinforced when you hear someone's voice it's, you know because i guess there's some things that are just lost in translation um, yeah, there's there's so much. Um, I, I mean, I I never forget my voice teacher, Kristen Linklater, who sadly died earlier this month. I was very sad oh, to hear sorry that. To hear that. Yeah. She she said to us once. I mean, she was incredible teacher's work with lots of um, great actors. She specialized in teaching how to speak Shakespearean verse, which is obviously why I went up there. Of course. And but she said to us one day, she said, "Your voice is yourself," and that went right through me because I realized, you know, it's true that there's so much that you pick up in terms of emotional tonality and life experience and attitude that comes through the voice that you won't get from the page, however good a writer is. Um, so I definitely think, agree, there's that much stronger connection that you could get with audio. Um, and also I think audio, typically people will consume it in their private time. 
you know, when they're in the gym or they're going for a walk or they're driving or chilling out or, you know, cleaning up at home. And it's a real privilege to be in that space, to be the voice in their ear at, at that time. So uh, I think it's a wonderful medium. Huh. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. That that it's usually consumed, especially a podcast. Yeah, when you're kind of alone. Well, I mean, reading too, I guess, but yeah, I need to think about that. That's actually pretty insightful. I need to noodle that one a little bit more because one of the things that I'm trying to figure out, you know, as I do all these interviews is, you know, what, what are some of the traits, values, and beliefs that entrepreneurs hold, you know, and that's always like not a challenge per se, but just there's lots of different types of entrepreneurs. There's lots of different types of people. Um, they all do different types of things. Some people are really good as an example, um, really good at doing a podcast. Some people are doing a podcast because it's the new thing and you can kind of tell. Like, it just doesn't sound very, I don't want to say authentic because I think authentic is a different, I think they're all authentic. It's just that they don't come across as, I don't know, I don't know what the, how to put my finger on the words to use. It's sort of like the difference between a really someone that you know is sort of really passionate about like helping as opposed to someone that's using it for promotion, I guess. I mean, I, maybe I'm kind of like off base on that because what, what I get the sense when I listen to what you're doing is that like, you're really interested in what this person has to offer. You, you are like legitimately like, this is really cool. I want to share this with the world. I want to share your unique perspective, creativity, what you do, how it affects me, um, why it's important, even if it's some eclectic thing. I remember, you know, when we first met, you're like, I'm a poet. And I'm like, well, I don't remember the last time I read a poem. <laughs> right? Can we change I, the subject? Yeah, can we change the subject? I don't. I never, you know. And then, you know, I met my fiance, Minerva. Her father was a haiku poet. And he was mm -hmm. what's called an urban, yeah, yeah. Yeah, urban haiku poet, right? And I'm yeah. like, I, you know, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I love haiku. And so I think I even sent you his book. But it's just you funny. Yeah, I have it on the shelf behind yeah, me here. Yeah, yeah. And it's just so funny because I'm like, I, and then, and then I was in New York and I went to the, there's a poet museum in New York City. And I'm like, oh, I got to go here because Mark's a poet. And I feel like if I, you know, if he doesn't know about this, I got to tell him, right? But so even the, the poet's house. Poets House, right, right, right along the the river there, Hudson. I, I need to go there. Yeah, it's 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 really cool. Even if you're not don't not really into poetry, because you're like, there's wow, there's a lot of poetry, and some of the poetry is literally mm -hmm. like stapled <laughs> on binder paper. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's beautiful, but it's beautiful, right? I never would have appreciated poetry like I appreciate poetry now. But I don't like. I'm not that into it. But I now I'm like okay, like spoken word and all these sort of things. So. I really think that the exploration of the different types of creativity, what that means, the importance of it, um, is really valuable. It's a very valuable thing to have in the world because we just can't all be, I mean, we're all entrepreneurs, right? Everyone wants to make money. Making money is not evil, but, you know, there's more, right? It feels like there's more to life than that. Well, you know, this comes back to what we were saying about your your own ideal business i think to, so to me the way i see entrepreneurial creativity is they like solving a, a, an entrepreneur gets fired up by solving a business problem they look at a market they look at a product they look at a system that is somehow broken and they think i can figure this out i can make this better in the way that i as a poet i'm fascinated by formal problems how can i get these words to do this job because they're not doing the job right now or, you know, what would happen if I took the sonnet and then I did this with it? Or, you know, a musician would be interested in solving some kind of technical formal problem in that space. Uh, Marcus Dusotoy, when I interviewed him, the mathematician, he, he gave me a very interesting perspective on mathematics. He said a lot of it is, it's, he, he argued, and I was pretty convinced, that it's very creative because at the high level, it is all about problem solving and storytelling about those problems. He said, it's not about doing long division. He said, computers can do that better than, than he can. So 
you know, to me, the sign of a real entrepreneur is someone who, yeah, they want to make money, but that's not the primary mode. I mean, there's plenty of people who want to make money who are not entrepreneurs, but the entrepreneur gets fired up by here's a business problem. And I, I reckon I can solve it in a better way than anyone else. And that is really what gets them up in the morning. Yeah. Wow. That's a great place to end. <laughs> I couldn't have said it any better myself. So Mark, appreciate all your time, what you're doing over at the 21st Century Creative and uh, value your friendship. Stay safe and uh, looking forward to seeing what else you got in store. Likewise. Thank you, Joe. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It was great to have you over at my place on my show. And it's I love what you're doing with this show. I think it's terrific, as, as was the book. So uh, keep at it. I will. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learn something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.